come now to oral questions. The first in the name point of order, the right honourable Winston yeah, Peters. I'm not too certain with you. We've got an organisational or a structural problem or some teething problems in your office, but um, having checked the questions of the House today, I thought there's something drastically wrong because there are no questions for the Prime Minister. Yeah, well, that's a very, um, very interesting point of order. I, I'm not sure how we remedy it here. Um, good, we'll have the uh, first question of the day in the name of the Honourable Carmel Cipollone. Mr Speaker, to the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, how many more children are forecast to be in poverty as a result of her government's decision to change the indexing of benefits from wage growth to inflation? The Honourable Nicola Willis. Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister for Child Poverty Reduction, Mr Speaker, the analysis which is publicly available and has been tabled in this House states that preliminary modelling shows indexing main benefits to inflation in isolation as a policy may increase the number of children captured by the after housing costs fixed line and before housing costs moving line measures of child poverty by 7,000 plus or minus by the year 2028 in the absence of other government policies and intervention. The government is, however, making policy changes before 2028, such as tackling the cost of living, delivering tax relief through back pocket boost, and stopping petrol tax hikes that will significantly help New Zealand families with children in modest to low income households. It is also our intention to break vicious cycles of welfare dependency that substantially increased under the previous government that trap children in poverty. Mr Speaker, what advice has she received on how many of the forecast 7,000 extra children in poverty are likely to have a disability or live in a household with a person who has a disability? Uh, Mr Speaker, I'm not aware of having received that advice. Mr Speaker, given that the supplementary analysis report of the indexation bill clearly states the risk of disabled people and people with health conditions being disadvantaged by the change in indexation, does she expect more children in households with disabled parents to have increased poverty? On behalf of the Minister, Mr Speaker, as I said in answer to the primary question, that the modelling that the member refers to is in the absence of any other government policies and interventions. And our government fully intends to take other policies and intervention such that we can have confidence uh, that we will be doing more to help children in poverty than that minister ever managed to achieve. Just uh, remind members that when asking uh, supplementary questions, they need to begin with a question word. Mr Speaker, will the number of children forecast to be in poverty because of her government's change to indexation increase or decrease as a result of wage growth figures outstripping inflation in time for this year's 1st of April general adjustments to benefit? Well, Mr Speaker, I think what the member is referring to is the fact that, unfortunately, under the last government, we had a situation where inflation was outstripping wage growth. And what that meant was it not only eroded the purchasing power of New Zealand workers and their families, it also meant 
that the previous administration's wrong-headed changes to the indexing of benefits would have effectively meant actually that benefits would have reduced by less than they will actually under this government this year. Mr Speaker, does she agree with the supplementary analysis report that $670 million in savings the government will make that the $670 million in savings the government will make from changes to benefit indexation will be available to be used for tax cuts. And is this fair on the poorest New Zealanders? Well, Mr Speaker, that money will actually go into the consolidated account where it will help pay for schools, where it will help pay for nurses, where it will help ensure we have police on our streets, where it will help ensure we lock up the offenders that they wanted running free. We will, we will ensure that that money, Mr Speaker, we treat it with much better care than that government ever did. Mr Speaker. Just wait, wait for silence. There was talking during your last question from your own side, which is not very respectful. I think it was in support, but thank you, Mr Speaker. Does she agree with the Children's Commissioner that indexing benefits to wage growth was the single biggest step to stop children remaining in poverty and if so, why is she reversing these changes? No, I disagree. Because actually, the single biggest thing we can do is reduce the number of children growing up in benefit-dependent households. And then the second biggest thing we can do is provide those children a decent education by ensuring they're turning up to school and we're teaching them how to read, write and do maths. These are tasks, Mr Speaker, that the previous government ignored. They were prepared to see children trapped in cycles of poverty and this government is not. Question number two, in the name of the Honourable Marua Davidson. Tēnā to the Minister for Social Development and Employment. Does she accept the statement in the Salvation Army's State of the Nation 2024 report, which says that, quote, in 2023, for households relying on welfare benefits, income levels continue to fall significantly short of what is needed for some level of participation in society? No. Nicola Willis. Uh, Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, the answer is no. However, I do agree with the statement in the Salvation Army report that says, we have a new government that cannot take credit for the positive developments outlined in this report or be blamed <laughs> for the disturbing developments that have taken place over the last one to three years. How can the government justify generating savings by reducing benefit increases for people already living below the poverty line to pay for tax cuts, tax cuts for the rich. Well, Mr Speaker, the member may be concerned that she was aligned with a government that was responsible for delivering some of these outcomes that are also reported in the Salvation Army report. The proportion of children reporting some level of food insecurity rose sharply in 2023, including 40% of Pacific households with children. And the number of children, Mr Speaker, in benefit-dependent households increased during 2023, meaning more children are at risk of poverty. Right. Point of order. Uh, point of order, Ricardo, uh, as much. Before addressing that question, that answer clearly became with a political attack um, in relationship to the member's alignment with the previous government. And you had just ruled about the need to um, start, the question, start the answers by addressing the questions rather than with political attacks. 
Well, it, I heard from my left that it wasn't a political question. I think essentially it was. All questions by their nature are political, but the question is, uh, what is the intention of it? I didn't think that the uh, response from uh, the Honourable Nicola Willis was uh, particularly pernicious. It was uh, a, a, a question about reflection. Supplementary, Ricardo Mendes March. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Does she stand by her statement that, I quote, it's challenging to live on a benefit at any rate? And if so, why did she decide to deliberately make it more challenging by lowering increases to benefits? On behalf of the Minister, I stand by my statements. Board of Order, uh, the Honourable Kira McNulty. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm seeking some clarification from your ruling just now in that all political questions by nature, so all questions by nature are political. Speaker's rulings are quite clear that it makes a distinction between a general question and one that is political in nature. And if a member asks a question that's political in nature, they can expect a political answer. Mm. The converse of that is if they ask a straight question, they should expect a straight answer. I'm concerned that your response goes counter to that, so could you please clarify? Uh, no, I don't think it does. I think it just... Um in many ways, uh, clarifies a degree of thinking. Uh, we're, uh, in, the, in so much as we're all elected because of the political system, uh, then anything we do in here has a political nature. Uh, but I'll, look, I'll uh, take under advisement, as I have done on other occasions, and reflect further on uh, your submission. Ricardo Mendes March. Thank you. Does she agree with the, with the statement from the Minister of Finance that, quotes, what I am conscious of and what I want New Zealanders to appreciate is that when our economy is deteriorating in the way that it has been, that comes with pretty profound human impacts in terms of unemployment. And if so, why is she choosing to people um, why is she choosing to punish people experiencing unemployment? Uh, well, Mr Speaker, on behalf of the Minister, I think the Minister of Finance put that very well. Uh, and it is actually why this government is so determined that for those who can work, we want to support them into work, because that is what lifts their incomes in the long term. And we think it is shameful that under a time of declining employment, 69,000 more people went on to the job seeker benefit under Labor, with 50,000 more children living in benefit dependent households. That is no way no, out of poverty. It's not. Um, uh, supplementary, Kahurangi uh, Kata. She beat you by some seconds. But I know that's unusual. It's not something I could do. Thank you. Is she concerned by advice from officials that indexing benefits to inflation rather than wage growth will result in bigger reductions to increases of the supported living payment than to the job seeker benefit? On behalf of the Minister, Mr Speaker, uh, what I am pleased to see is that we have a government that is taking action to support incomes and address the cost of living across the board. That includes policies uh, such as the Family Boost Policy to provide childcare rebates to families uh, with children in childcare, policies to remove the Auckland Regional Fuel Tax, to stop petrol tax increases and to ensure that the economy is better managed so that there are more opportunities for New Zealanders in all circumstances. Right Honourable Winston Peters. Right on, oh, sorry? 
Point of order, Honourable James Shaw. Um, and I know that we're straying into territory that we've visited uh, in the not-too-distant past, but um, the question was quite specific around advice that the Minister had received from officials in relation to a specific government policy. Now, the Minister um, referred to a number of other policies, but not to the one that was asked. Uh, and I know that we've had a conversation about saying, you know, that the question was addressed. But uh, in the past, um, such as under um, Speaker uh, uh, Carter, um, if a, a question was uh, narrow, um, then it was fair to expect a response that was relating um, specifically to the question that was asked. If a question was broader uh, and more political, uh, then, you know, you could expect a, a broader and, and more political response. Um, but if we find ourselves in a situation where um, uh, uh, members are trying to ask specific questions um, that are quite narrow in nature in order to elicit a response, and all we get is a general answer that talks about the topic that the question happens to be related to, then that somewhat obviates the need for question time at all. Uh, that's very reasonably put. Uh, would the Minister like to uh, expand on the answer given previously? On behalf of the Minister, uh, the, I am not, I'm simply not aware of the detail of the advice to which the member refers. Right on Winston Peters. Could I ask the Minister as to whether she's concerned with respect to the, State, uh, the Salvation Army State of the Nation report and its concerns about poverty, that in outlining that report, behind it was the fact that 128,000 immigrants came to New Zealand in October last year exacerbating that all the conditions that this government now has to deal with. Uh, on behalf of the Minister, Mr Speaker, the Deputy Prime Minister makes a very good point. I've recently sat down with the Minister of Immigration and looked at what has happened with immigration uh, in recent years. And what we saw was that despite the rhetoric about highly skilled migrants being targeted. What instead we saw under the last government's immigration settings was a significant yeah, spike in that's... lowly skilled workers at the expense of highly skilled workers. How does this change support her focus on, quote, getting people who can work into work, end quote, when officials have advised that, quote, Beneficiaries that are not able to work will also be impacted by this change, but will have no ability to enter work to change their situation. Well, the member is correct that different groups of uh, beneficiaries are affected in different ways, and some beneficiaries have more options to seek employment than others. It is important that we take steps across all of our policy settings to support New Zealanders, including for example, ensuring that when they need to access the health system, they can do so. Ensuring that their children attend schools where they get taught the basics of reading, writing and maths. Ensuring they live in safer communities and aren't victimised by violent crime at the rates they were under the last government. Supplementary, the right honourable Has the Finance Minister received any reports requested by the last government and members of that government into the effects of 128,000 people coming here in one year flat and what it would mean for housing, health, access to infrastructure uh, and, uh, dare I say it, law and order in this country. Has she received any reports of their request back then rather than the faux concern they're showing now? Point of order. But the biggest is that the question is not to the Minister of Finance. 
Sorry? It's not to the Minister of Finance. The question's out of order. That was the very first words the, the questioner said to the Minister of Finance. <laughs> right. Well, because I'm very fair, would the right of subpoenas like to address the first part of its question uh, to the appropriate minister? Has the minister received any reports of requests by the previous government of their officials as to the unheralded impact of 128,000, a record number, coming to New Zealand in just one year, and its impact on housing availability, educational facility availability, infrastructure and health? Were there any reports requested back then by these people now today showing faux concern in the House? Uh, the last Point of order. Point of order. order. Ricardo Mendes, March. The issues that um, the Honourable Winston Peters uh, raised uh, are not related to any responsibilities that the Minister of Social Development and Employment has. Uh, when, when he opens the question with, has she seen any reports of, it's an order. Uh, any further questions on this? Okay, then we move now to question number three. Now we go to question number three in the name of Nancy Liu. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Finance. What recent reports has she seen on the Crown accounts? Mr Speaker, this morning Treasury released the Government's financial statements for the six months ended 31 December 2023. These show that most of the key fiscal indicators are slightly stronger than expected in the Treasury's half-year forecasts before Christmas. However, saying they are slightly stronger than expected is damning with faint praise. It does not disguise the fact, for example, that the accounts show an increase in core Crown expenses of around 10% since the same statement a year ago. Supplementary. Does these results change the outlook for the next six months? Mr Speaker, unfortunately I don't think they will make the outlook any rosier. Data revisions and recent outturns since the half-year update indicate that the economy is likely to be in a weaker position than understood before Christmas. For example, GDP growth was weaker than expected in the September quarter of last year, contracting 0.3%, and growth in the preceding two quarters was revised down. Looking ahead, while business confidence has picked up, a prolonged period of pressure on household budgets means growth is expected to remain weak, and high migration means GDP per capita is expected to continue to decline. Inflation, however, is expected to continue falling, reducing cost of living pressures for New Zealand households. Supplementary. What will this outlook mean for the government's fiscal position? Mr Speaker, we won't know for sure until the budget update on May 30. The half-year economic and fiscal update forecasts before Christmas were for three more years of operating deficits, followed by a wafer-thin surplus of $100 million in the 2026-27 financial year. However, a combination of slower-than-forecast growth and lower-than-forecast inflation may result in weaker tax revenue, placing further pressure on the pace of fiscal recovery. Put it this way. I think it is highly unlikely that the full set of forecasts in May will deliver any upside surprises. Supplementary. When will the government set out its fiscal objectives? Mr Speaker, the government is required to set out its short-term intentions and long-term objectives for fiscal policy in the annual budget policy statement. The budget policy statement will also set out the government's priorities for this year's budget. The BPS will be released on March 27. 
come now to question number four. In the name of uh, the Honourable Grant Roberts. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question, I'll just give the member a breather for a moment, um, to the Minister of Finance. Does she stand by the commitment in the Coalition Agreement with ACT to, quote, restore mortgage interest deductibility for rental properties with a 60% deduction in 2023-24, 80% in 2024-25, and 100% in 2025-26, close quote? If so, what is the estimated cost to the Crown of this commitment. The Honourable Nicola Willis. Mr Speaker, to the first part of the question, I can confirm to the member that that is indeed the wording in the coalition agreement and that the government intends to keep its coalition commitments. To the second part, Cabinet has yet to consider the details of this policy and its implementation, so the member will have to wait until it is announced. Supplementary. Can she confirm that she has had advice that the cost of adding retrospectivity the retro to the change to interest deductibility is close to $1 billion? Mr Speaker, I can confirm that I have had uh, advice on this issue and I can confirm that discussions have not yet been had by Cabinet and I will not be getting ahead of those discussions. Mr Speaker, can the Minister confirm to the House that adding retrospectivity to the interest deductibility changes will increase the costs to the Crown? I, Mr Speaker, I can see that the member is getting excited because taxpayers might be getting something back from the government. He should really wait and see when the policy is announced. <laughs> Supplementary, Mr Speaker. Is she concerned about the precedent that would be set by giving retrospective tax cuts that have been described by tax experts as, quote, highly unorthodox and really very unusual? Mr Speaker, let me tell you about the precedent I'm excited about. I'm excited about the precedent of tax reduction for the first time in 14 years. The members of <laughs> the member opposite had had three opportunities, had six opportunities to do it, and he couldn't bring himself to let New Zealanders keep more of their own money, and this government will. Sorry? Point of order then, Mr Speaker. Um, so I understand that the word precedent was in the question, but it was the precedent of retrospective tax cuts. The member didn't even go close to addressing that. Well, okay. Um, let's do it again. Um, no, no. <laughs> Mr Speaker, I think what the member is inquiring about is the precedent that would be set by a form of tax reduction. And I... And I... I would refer the. Can, can I just advise members opposite if they want an answer? I'm very prepared to speak if they're prepared to listen. Mr. Uh, no, that's enough. <laughs> Mr. Speaker, as I answered an answer to the primary question, the details of the application of this policy are yet to be considered by Cabinet. When it comes to precedent on tax policy matters, we are a government that will be very happy to be setting a precedent of letting New Zealanders keep more of their own money. Supplementary, que supplementary question. Why is it a priority to give tax cuts to landlords at a time when there is legislation going through the House today that will cut the incomes of the poorest New Zealanders and push thousands of children into poverty? 
Mr Speaker, I find it interesting that the member opposite wishes to demonise landlords. If there were no landlords in New Zealand, there would be no tenants. No one would be able to rent a home. And under that government, I would note, rents went up considerably. Well, we want to be a government that delivers more housing. It actually achieves more affordable housing, unlike that government, which colossally failed. Remember the 100,000 Kiwi build houses? Question number five, in the name of David McLeod. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This question is to the Minister of Local Government. Does he stand by his statement, the Government will restore council ownership and control of water assets? If so, what actions has he taken to fulfil this commitment? The Honourable Simeon Brown. Mr Speaker, yes. Yesterday the Coalition Government delivered on its promise to repeal the divisive Three Waters programme. That would have taken local decisions away from communities. The vast majority of councils were opposed to Labor's Three Waters. This government is delivering on our commitment to restore local council ownership and control of water assets. Supplementary. Why was it necessary for the government to repeal the Water Services and Entities Act 2022? Well, Mr Speaker, Communities throughout the country made it clear the previous government's plans to mandate 10 mega bureaucracies taking local control of water assets and prescribing co-governance was hugely unpopular. We are asking councils to lead the way in developing local solutions to our water services challenges. This includes requiring them to provide water service delivery plans that outline how they will deliver on outcomes for water quality, infrastructure investment and financial sustainability. Supplementary. Why is it important for councils and communities to have local ownership and control of water assets? Because councils know what is needed for their communities when it comes to water infrastructure in their communities. Unlike the previous government which wanted to mandate uh, co-government... Supplementary. What are the next steps in making sure that local water is done well? Well, Mr Speaker, the Government will be implementing local water done well through two further bills. The first, the second, next bill will be passed by the middle of 2024, setting out provisions relating to council service delivery plans and transitional economic regulation. A next bill to provide for the long-term replacement scheme will be introduced in December 2024. Coming now to question number six. Mr Speaker, my question is to the Minister of Transport. Does he stand by all his statements and actions? Honourable Simeon Brown. Yes, particularly when I said that this government will not tax Aucklanders an additional 11.5 cents per litre on fuel to fund more cycle lanes, red light cameras, speed bumps and lowering speed limits across the city. Supplementary. Has he already determined that the Eastern Busway and the Glenvar Road East Coast Road adjustment projects, quote, will be prioritised for the remaining funds, end quote, of the regional fuel tax, and will he simply continue to just tell Auckland Council which projects it will now fund? Well, Mr Speaker, uh, the Minister, myself, and the Mayor, sorry, the Mayor and myself have... Uh, have sat down with uh, each other and discussed what the priority projects should be from the remaining funds. The Eastern Busway, CRL trains and stabling and local roading improvements. That's what we're going to make sure those remaining funds are spent on. Supplementary. What other local projects are on his list 
to tell Auckland Council what they will be funding as a priority, and has he told Auckland Council of this yet? Well, we sat down and had a conversation around what the priority projects are. The Eastern Busway, City Rail Link trains and stabling, and local roading improvements. That's what we're going to require those remaining funds to be spent on. What we're not going to be charging Aucklanders an 11.5 cents a litre more on is to build speed bumps. And if that's what that member wants to do, you go tell that's Aucklanders enough. to go and ask them for more money to build speed bumps. Supplementary. Does he agree with the Prime Minister? Quote, our fundamental belief is localism and devolution. We do not believe in centralisation and control through Wellington, and if so, why is he dictating to Auckland Council what they will and won't build? I always agree with the Prime Minister, and we will be making sure that the remaining funds go on the priority projects which Auckland Council has the, and the Mayor has identified around what are the priority projects for the remaining funds, which is the Eastern Busway and City Rail Link, the, uh, the uh, local roading projects, but if the Labor Party wants to go to Auckland and tell Aucklanders they need to pay no, more no. money for speed bumps, I no. wish you luck. <laughs> just, uh, the last part of that question was just unnecessarily provocative on what is otherwise quite a productive house. No. A quarter of all the right on Winston Peters. So you might talk about an unproductive house, but the reality is, if over there they don't like the answer, they're not just one or two people heckling, which was understood to be the precincts in this House, but about seven, eight or ten are shouting at the same time, and that, sir, represents disorder extremely, and they should be told to behave, them, to behave themselves. Uh, thank, thanks very much. <coughs> Speaking to the point of order, Mr. I don't need any help on that one. I don't need any further guidance on that one. Thank yeah. you, Another supplementary? Big button? Extra supplementary? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Well, I didn't know, but thanks for self-reporting. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, question number six. No, no, I have one. I have one. Laura Trask. <laughs> Mr Speaker, to the oh, Minister. Well, then, does he agree with Wayne Brown? Quote, a negotiation isn't telling me what happens. I'm not a supine thing you walk over, end quote. Well, Just the, the government has made it clear we will be ensuring the funds that are remaining will go to the priority projects which the Mayor and I have discussed, which is the Eastern Busway, the City Rail Link trains and stabling, local road improvements, and as I said, if the Labor Party wants to ask Aucklanders for more money to build speed bumps, get on your bike and enjoy yourselves. And, and that's, that's why the House gets a bit rowdy at times. Question number six, Laura Trusk. I think it might be question number seven, but thank you, Mr Seeker. Oh, see, um, see, quite right, yeah. <laughs> no worries. So my question is to the Minister for Children. What are her priorities for the children's portfolio? Uh, the Honourable Karen Choi. Mr Speaker, my goal is to ensure that Oranga Tamariki is tr a truly child-centric care and protection agency, where the safety and wellbeing and the best interests of children are at the forefront of social work practice and decision making. One way I intend to do this is by, by repealing section 7AA of the Oranga Tamariki Act. This section places duties on the chief executive that are at odds with the agency's primary purpose, which is to support the wellbeing of our most vulnerable at-risk children. Where Oranga Tamariki has entered into strategic partnerships under Section 7AA, I have directed them to continue with these where they are delivering positive results. 
Supplementary. What other priorities does the Minister have? Mr Speaker, I want to see real change in how caregivers are treated and supported. In opposition, I heard many stories about how caregivers couldn't make everyday decisions about the children in their care, like sending them to a school camp or even enrolling them in school or with a GP. In one case, a caregiver had paid for counselling that was desperately needed for a child and paid for it themselves so they didn't have to wait months and months, only to be told this would have to stop as it had not been approved by Oranga Tamariki. I'm also focused on cracking down on serious youth offending and deterring young people from a life of crime and equipping them with the tools they need to turn their lives around. Supplementary. What feedback has the Minister received from the sector about these priorities? Mr Speaker, I have been travelling all around the country, visiting Oranga Tamariki site offices, residences and meeting with strategic partners including Auckland, Lower Hutt, Hawke's Bay, Christchurch, Whangarei, Kaitaia and Palmerston North. The feedback I have received about my vision and priorities for Oranga Tamariki has been overwhelmingly positive. When people have heard about this government's plans beyond what they may get from the media or for some members of the other side of the House, people appreciate and understand that Oranga Tamariki needs to get back to its core purpose of keeping young people safe and making sure they're cared and loved for. Iwi and Māori's strategic partners have also responded positively when I have met with them and talked about continuing to work in partnership with Oranga Tamariki. This matches with my vision to devolve decision-making and accountability back to the communities who are best placed to know what their young people need to live a safe, fulfilling life. Supplementary, uh, the Honourable Dr Duncan Webb. Given the views of the Minister that young people need to be cared and loved for, and the six recommendations of the Auditor-General in respect of Araga Tamariki in, in respect of mental health. Stop. Sorry. You, the, quite apart from the chipping, uh, start with a question word. How? <laughs> That's enough. That's enough. Does the minister's, how does the minister's priorities meet the needs of young children, of young people, for a caring and loving environment, given the six recommendations of the Auditor-General in respect to Aranga Tamariki, and the lack of evidence that boot camps have any assistance in that regard whatsoever? Mr Speaker. I will never apologise for adding more t tools and skills to our young people so that they can cope when they come out of these facilities and have a better chance at life. Thank you. Uh, uh, Supplementary. Laura Trask. What feedback has the Minister received from children about her priorities? 
Mr Speaker, just last week I visited a youth justice residence. I received feedback, from a, feedback about a young person there who had heard about our plans to establish military academies. He was very excited about this and said he would be very excited to take part in something like this. This is just one example of the positive feedback I've received, not just from social workers and iwi and Māori partners, but also from children and young people. They are the ultimate reason I am here in this privileged position to be able to make their lives better so, I can, so they can not just survive but thrive. Thank you. Question number eight in the name of Carl Bates. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Education and reads, what reports has she seen about the introduction of the policy to remove the distraction of cell phones from school? The Honourable Erica Stafford. Mr Speaker, there have now been multiple media reports of the positive changes seen in schools since this policy was introduced. A Wellington student was quoted as saying by having her phone off and in her bag, she was already paying more attention to school notices and concentrating better in lessons without her phone distracting her. This is exactly why this government has removed the distraction of phones from schools. Supplementary. What feedback has the Minister seen from principals about the policy to remove the distraction of cell phones from schools? Mr Speaker, an Otago principal said that their teachers support the ban as the removal of phones helps students engage better with their learning. And a principal from Central Hawke's Bay uh, also reported that students have responded well to the change in policy and are engaging in interacting more face-to-face. -face. Supplementary. <laughs> What feedback has the speaker seen from the? Uh, sorry, what feedback has the minister seen? Just a minute. A question is being asked, so you get a little bit of silence. You can start again. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. What feedback has the minister seen from the public about the cell phone policy? Mr. Speaker, I've received multiple uh, correspondence from the public supporting the policy, saying that it's about time and it's a no-brainer. And in an interview with the Northern Advocate, a Kaitaia mother said. They're there to learn. As a parent, I think it's really good. They've actually got to interact more. Supplementary. <laughs> Carl Bates. What other feedback has the minister received about the cell phone policy? Mr Speaker, uh, a Wellington Year 9 Dean said she has seen no cell phones in class at all or walking around during school on duty. She noticed students engaging in game playing like cards and said that the librarians have been thrilled with the number of books students are taking out and have noticed students are reading in the library much more than last year. Mr Speaker, we are pleased with the implementation of the government's policy and it's been warmly welcomed by principals and teachers and is having a positive impact on students. The Right Honourable Winston Peters. Well, it pays to be athletic. Uh, could I ask the Minister as to whether she's been told that this ban on phones in schools by uh, school children has been so successful that it, the Queensland State Labor Party government in Australia has now adopted it as well? Uh, Mr Speaker, I am, hearing I am hearing reports about Australian states picking up uh, this policy like many other countries are around the world and I look forward uh, to speaking more positively about it in the future. 
uh, as more data and evidence comes to light as to the success of the policy. Supplementary. Well, thank you, Mr Speaker. What is the benefit of banning cell phones from classrooms at Wainuiamata High School now that their rebuild has been cancelled by this government and there won't be enough classrooms for the growing number of students? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, uh, speaking to the, the, the question and also in, uh, to, as it relates to the primary, uh, Mr Speaker, uh, the cell phone ban for Wainuiamata will have similar impacts to every other school that I'm hearing from, and that students are interacting more with each other, focusing on their learning, not getting distracted, and very soon, Mr Speaker, we are going to have evidence and data to show that this policy is working. We move now to question number nine in the name of the Honourable James Shaw. <coughs> yeah, thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, this is to the Minister uh, responsible for RMA reform. Does he have confidence that the proposed approach to fast-track consenting will protect due process for the consideration of environmental effects? Yes. Will he rule out including any projects that have already been considered and declined on environmental grounds, such as the Hananui Open Ocean Salmon Farm? No. Is he aware that when the panel declined the Hananui Salmon Farm that they found that there was a risk that even a small change in their population could have, quote, irreversible and catastrophic effects on the survival of critically endangered hoiho yellow-eyed penguin in the area? Well, I haven't read the decision of the panel in relation to that particular project, but what I would say in a more general sense is that it is possible to uh, have environmental conditions proposed on projects that mitigate and remedy uh, the environmental effects of a variety of projects, including, for example, renewable energy projects that will help decarbonise the economy and grow the economy uh, at the same time. And I would have thought the member would be in favour of such projects. If a project that has been previously de uh, declined by on environmental grounds by an independent panel is authorised by this legislation, and then leads to the functional extinction of a species like the hoiho yellow-eyed penguin, will that minister take responsibility? Well, the, the member is asking hypothetical questions. I haven't, decisions, decisions as, to, I just haven't ruled out the, uh, the premise of his original question. Decisions around the precise pathway for uh, projects that will be referred uh, are the subject of discussions right now as we uh, work through the process of getting the bill ready for introduction within the 100 days. Uh, and once a bill is ready to go and it's gone through Cabinet and presented to the House, uh, he'll have a good chance to have a look at it, as will a select committee. That'll be the first. Uh, can he confirm the Honourable Shane Jones's comments uh, to an energy breakfast this morning that under the new regime, quote, permits will be granted by politicians, end quote? Uh, yes, in the sense that ministers will be able to refer projects. There will be two pathways. One will be there will be a range of projects listed in the legislation, and then the second pathway will be 
uh, upon application to the government ministers, will be able to refer projects to an expert consenting panel. This is not new, by the way, because the COVID fast-track legislation also listed projects uh, in the legislation and also set up a process for ministers to refer projects to an expert consenting panel. So this is uh, not particularly new. This is the existing law. Uh, so in that sense, ministers will be able to refer projects to panels who will then set the conditions upon which those projects will uh, take place. Will he now seek assurances that all ministers are fully meeting their conflict of interest disclosure obligations under the Cabinet Manual, as he described yesterday, in relation to decision-making on potential projects? And if so, will he also commit to ensuring that no listed projects are connected to people or companies that have made substantial donations to coalition parties? Well, matters for the Cabinet Manual, as the member well knows, are matters for the Prime Minister, but I think I would be right in saying that the Prime Minister expects all ministers to uphold the um, principles and the text of the Cabinet Manual. Point of order, Speaker. Point of order, the right honourable Mr Speaker, that question might have sounded innocent, but like the others that that minister has asked, insinuating that there should be, and the minister should be looking out for a conflict of interest that is outside our electoral laws, is, I think, sir, out of order. And more importantly, if I hear that one more time, we're going to talk about people's qualifications at university. Speaking to the point of order, Mr Speaker. Speak. Speaking to the point of order, Mr Speaker. Um, whilst me thinks that the acting Prime Minister does protest too well, much... That's, that's irrelevant. What is your point? My point is, um, so I made no such insinuation. I was merely asking the Minister uh, if he was going to ensure, as part of the... Uh, process of putting together the bill uh, that there were steps being taken on due diligence to potential or perceived connections yep. because of because sorry I haven't because of the significant concentration of ministerial power on consenting decisions in this regime and it is one of the first duties of this house uh, to ensure that the executive is being accountable for their actions and in this case there is extraordinary uh, concentration of ministerial power on this bill. So I think it does warrant the House's attention uh, on, uh, on uh, issues like, is the Cabinet manual being observed? And, and, uh, and you've got an observed? answer that I think was more than satisfactory from the Minister. Well, that's, that's, that's true, but, um, but, but the, uh, well, the but Deputy it, Prime Minister raises no, it. That's irrelevant. It was irrelevant. There's, there's no acceptance of it one way or the other. Question... Question, question number 10, I think, is it? Just check. Yep. In the name of Kushta Tangare Manual. Tēnā koe e te māngai o te whare. Ko tēnei taku tūnga tuatahi roto i tēnei whare o tātou nā reira me mihi atu kia koe kātika. Kei te mihi hokeau ki ngā whānau whānui e noho tono ana i raro i ngā uauatanga o Cyclone Gabriel ko tahitau, ko tahitau ki muri. Does he stand by his statement, what we, re quote, what we really focused on is delivering outcomes and working with communities? Just ask the, minute, the member. You cannot stand up and say anything during question time when you're asking a question other than what is printed on the sheet. So I'd ask the member to start again. My question is to the Minister of Māori Development. Does he stand by his statement, quote, what we're really focused on is delivering outcomes and working with communities, 
iwi communities, Māori communities and others to make the changes to the inequalities we see on a daily basis." End quote. The Honourable Tamapuka. I do stand by my statement, and our government deeply cares about inequalities of opportunity that many communities in New Zealand are facing, particularly Māori communities, around housing, health and education. That's why our view is the devolution of resources is generally better to achieve equalities of opportunity, such as the recent funding announcement by the superlative Minister Matua Takuta Shane Veti to help with child immunisation rates. Supplementary. What is the Minister doing to support whānau and owners of whenua Māori in Tairawhiti and Kahungunu one year after Cyclone Gabriel? Honourable Tama Mr Speaker, uh, over the last uh, couple of months, Ministers, including myself, have visited to Tairawhiti and throughout to Matua Māori to understand some of the challenges that those whānau are facing. There is also some provision of funding, uh, both in mainstream and Māori, Kaupapa Māori pathway funding, to assist with those communities, and we continue to look at how we can use that. Supplementary. Was he advised prior to the recent $63 million boost funding for Hawke's Bay and Tairawhiti, announced by Minister Mitchell, and if so, did he relay any concern regarding the lack of any support for Māori and whenua Māori? Ministers, including myself, are in regular communications with one another about the efforts made to try and help those people who have gone through difficult weather events over the last year or so. Uh, as a result, I continue to work with and engage with those ministers responsible for the Kaupapa Māori pathway to support Māori land that has been categorised. No, no, answer the one yeah. question that's yeah. asked appropriately. Yes. I, I continue to work with ministers in that regard. <laughs> question number 10, the name of Tom Rutherford. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for Building and Construction. What reports has he seen on the cost of building in New Zealand? Oh, great question. Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker, and I thank the member for the question. The latest inflation data from Stats New Zealand shows that the price of building a new house has increased by 41% uh, as compared with 2019 prices. Uh, this massive increase in the cost of building over the last four years has made housing even more unaffordable for Kiwi families. Supplementary. Are building costs higher or lower in New Zealand than other countries? Speaker. Um, analysis shows that building costs um, are generally higher uh, in New Zealand than in comparable overseas jurisdictions. In Australia, for example, the cost of building a standalone house is some 50-50% higher than in New Zealand. Clearly this is not good enough and we are working to resolve that problem. Supplementary. What impact do high construction costs have on New Zealanders? Mr Speaker, another great question. I couldn't have written it better myself. Um, not, not only do high building costs make it harder for uh, families trying to purchase their first home, uh, but they also have far-reaching economic and social consequences uh, such as higher mortgage repayment costs, higher rents and increased demand for social housing. Supplementary, does the government have any plans to change this? Mr Speaker, uh, yes we certainly do. We certainly do. I'm pleased to inform all members that we uh, most certainly do have plans in this regard. Uh, for example, our coalition agreement with our New Zealand First 
uh, friend sets out that this government will amend the Building Act to make it easier to build uh, granny flats, smaller structures up to 60 square metres. Uh, and in addition, our coalition agreement with the Act Party uh, also states that the government will explore allowing builders to opt out of needing a building consent, provided they have long-term insurance uh, for the building work. So again, we will explore that. Supplementary. What else is the government doing? Another good question. Um, Mr Speaker, the government is focused on slowing the rise of uh, construction costs so that we can make it more affordable to build uh, a home. Uh, Kiwis pay too much for building materials, for example, uh, and ensuring more high-quality building products are approved for use in building sites across the country will increase competition, lower building material costs and support our resilience in the event of supply chain disruption. Well done. Question number 11. Uh, sorry, 12, in the name of Ingrid Leary. My question is for the Minister for Mental Health. Does he stand by his statement, under this government, mental health will be a priority? If so, what actions, if any, has he taken to make mental health a priority? The Honourable Matt Ducey. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. In answer to the first part of the member's question, yes, in the context of the full quote of establishing a mental health strategy within the Pai Ora legislation for the first time, where I said, quote, why not have a strategy on X or Y or Z? Yeah, I agree. It comes down to priorities. And under this government, mental health will be a priority. That's why we're legislating it as one of the strategies under the Pai Ora health reforms. In answer to the second part, Establishing the role of New Zealand's first mental health minister, which now includes the responsibility of the almost $2.5 billion of Ringfence mental health and addiction funding. Supplementary. Is the minister's answer that in 80 days the only real action he has taken as a minister for mental health is to support his former members' bill? Mr Speaker. I've enjoyed working with mental health professional bodies to grow the pipeline of mental health professionals, and I look forward to making announcements about this in due course. Supplementary. Has he set a target to reduce mental health specialist wait times? And can he assure Lower South Islanders they won't have to wait longer for mental health specialist services than those elsewhere? Well, Mr Speaker, I won't be lectured by that member when today we published a report in the House from the Auditor-General that says more young people are waiting longer for specialist services when they came into government. Shame on them. Yeah, that's good. That's good. But the question, the, the question was about now. So uh, could the Minister have another crack at addressing that? Mr Speaker, I've been reviewing the mental health budget announcements of the last government to identify underspend so I can get the money out of Wellington to the front line to address waiting times, and I look forward to making announcements about that in due course. Supplementary. Does he stand by his statement that being Minister for Mental Health is, quote, also a role of advocacy, where I can go to those ministers and say, you know, what are we doing in this space and can we do better? And if so, what projects has he advocated for in the government's first 100 days? Mr Speaker, 
Uh, I've been working with other government departments to develop a cross-government approach to mental health, and I look forward to making announcements about that cross-government approach in due course. Supplementary. What recent reports has he seen on the link between mental health and financial stress? And has he asked the Minister for Social Development to reverse her decision to index benefits in line with inflation, which will push more New Zealanders into poverty? That well, Mr. Speaker, wasn't a question. But anyway, yeah, the reports I have seen, sadly, is the one published today in the House at two o'clock from the Auditor General. After I wrote to him in April 2022, because of the promised funding the last government announced, yet it made no material difference. The report findings are clear: things have got worse. There's no workforce plan, and basically, they failed in mental health. That's right, sad. That concludes uh, oral questions.